Hey, what's up, Liberty lovers? This is your Felony Friday host, John Odermatt, coming at you real quickly. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to tell you about another great podcast, The Brian Nichols Show. Brian previously has been on our program, on our flagship program, hosted by Mark Clare. Mark, in turn, has been on his show as well. The Brian Nichols Show's, what do you expect? Who is it for? It's for folks who are tired of partisan politics. Who is not tired of partisan politics right now? And it's for people who are interested in finding objective news without the media narrative. For those of you who are looking to take the next step and learn how to sell liberty from an expert sales professional. Brian's had some awesome guests on his show over the years. Justin Amash, Thomas Massey, Matt Kibbe, Jason Stapleton, Larry Sharp. He has not had me on, so maybe he will correct that and take it up another notch and make his show even better. Regardless, Brian has a great program. Check it out. There's no better time to be checking out his show as he has just expanded to two shows per week. The Brian Nichols Show. Check it out wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here at Lions of Liberty, we have a bit of a uh, variety channel. My Friday show, Felony Friday, is one of the great shows, but there's two more. On Monday and Wednesday, Monday's show hosted by Mark Clare, Wednesday by Brian McWilliams. They both bring their own flavor and flair to the podcasting game. Check those out. Subscribe to Lions of Liberty on your podcasting app to get all three. And today's episode of Felony Friday is another great one. I have an awesome guest lined up who is going to share another story of injustice in the criminal justice system. And we're going to shine a light and we are going to keep the momentum going. Keep the momentum going for change in the criminal justice system. So share this show, tell a friend, text it to a friend, tell a stranger on the street. I don't care. Enjoy today's show. All right. My guest today on Felony Friday is Tessie Castillo. Tessie is the co-author of The Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. Uh, She's co-authored it with four inmates who are currently on death row. Tessie, welcome to Felony Friday. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for, for coming on the show. And I'm, I'm really glad that one of, uh, one of my listeners uh, connected us, reached out to you and reached out to me and uh, wanted to help to facilitate this interview. I haven't had on any uh, death row inmates before. And uh, after your interview, we're going to be speaking with George Wilkerson, one of your co-authors. So that'll be you know very interesting, and I'm sure my listeners are going to uh, get a lot out of that and enjoy it. Um, before we obviously get to that, though, I'd like to hear from you and learn your really your inspiration uh, behind what, what drove you to uh, to want to author uh, the Crimson Letters and what what made you want to you know really work with uh, and bring the voices from people on death row forward. Sure. Um, so this was not something I ever thought that I would be doing in my life. Uh, I would say that my inspiration came completely by an accident. I was at a Super Bowl party, actually, and I was um, hanging out by the food. And I met a gentleman who walked over 
who said that he was a psychologist who worked with prisoners on death row here in North Carolina. And I was fascinated. I wanted to learn everything about his job and what he was doing. And he told me that he had been part of bringing programming, rehabilitative programming into death row for the very first time. Because prior to that, there were no programs on death row. There were no libraries, there was no exercise equipment, there were no telephones, nothing. And so he was trying to, to bring in programs uh, like restorative justice and uh, healing programs, art programs, yoga programs, um, to try to help the guys dig deep uh, within themselves and, and figure out why they were there and, and who they wanted to be. So I offered to teach a writing class as a volunteer. And I was accepted and I went into the prison. I'll never forget my first time. I was very nervous, as you might imagine, yeah, being a so. woman um, in a, a prison with men who were all convicted of murder. Um, but what I found out pretty quickly when I met them was that I really didn't have anything to be afraid of. Uh, they were very gracious uh, with me. And the, in the writing class, I really encouraged them to, to write about where they came from, to write about their, their pasts, how they got to death row, and also what was important to them and how they had grown since they had been there. Mm -hmm. And through that, I, I got to know them and I saw some really incredible things. What I noticed more than anything was that people on death row, they, they have gone through a lot of suffering in their lives before they got there and they have caused a lot of suffering, which is why they're there. And then they've suffered since they've been there. And some of them have taken that suffering and it, it's, it seemed to just sort of broken them. They're, they're mm -hmm. very selfish. They saw a lot of selfishness um, and a lot of victim mentality on death row from many of the men. But from most of them, at least most of the ones in my class, I saw that they had taken that suffering and that they had grown from it and that they were genuinely remorseful for what they had done in their lives and that they really wanted to be better people and that they had become better people in the 10, 20, 30 years since they had been there. And I was so moved by that that I wrote a letter to the local newspaper explaining that and advocating for people on death row and, and saying they're not unredeemable monsters that we should just throw away. Mm -hmm. And uh, about a week later, I received a very terse letter from the warden of the prison <laughs> telling me that my services were no longer required and wow. my class was canceled. Uh, so after that, I started writing to, to my former students because I wanted to keep in touch. I, I really saw a lot there that, that I wanted to, I wanted to continue to facilitate their growth and, and self-discovery, and I was learning a lot too. So we started writing. They're incredible writers. I mean, these are men who did not graduate high school, have almost no formal education at all, and they're brilliant. Um, and the letters were so, they were so deep and insightful that I proposed the idea to several of them, why don't we put these letters and essays that you've written into a book? And that became Crimson Letters. So what kind of, uh, I guess, issues or pushback, or maybe you didn't uh, reach any when you're reaching out to publishers and, and, and yeah. trying to get this, uh, you know, this published, it was, was it easy to do? Was it something where it was hard to really find, find someone who wanted to do it? Well, it was not easy, no. <laughs> um, most of the publishers that I went to said, uh, 
no one would ever read this. They said it's too dark. They said nobody cares about the death penalty. There's no audience for this. There's no money in this. Um, so I just kept looking and looking and looking, and I eventually found a publisher who took it. Uh, but it was a hard journey. It, even writing the book, like, like the process of writing it with four different co-authors who were all in prison, mm -hmm. the logistics of that were incredibly difficult. We almost gave up many times. I almost gave up um, several times. And then once the, uh, the, the prison too was not pleased with the fact that we were writing a book. I mean, you can imagine what they did after I wrote one letter <laughs> mm -hmm. and now I'm writing an entire book. So they, uh, they wouldn't let the manuscript into the prison. So the men actually, my co-authors never saw the full version of the book before it was published, unfortunately. And then once it was published and I sent them copies of the book, the guards came around and they confiscated the copies and banned that too. So they can't have their own book. So you talked about the process being complicated, actually, you know, gathering uh, these essays and the writings from these inmates. What did that What did that process look like? Were you traveling to, to the prison? Was it over email or how did that work? Oh, no, <laughs> none of those things. Um, I'm not allowed in the prison anymore. I'm banned, I believe, for life. Wow. Um, and they don't have access to email at all. And in fact, when I started this process, they didn't have access to phones either. They were only allowed one 10-minute phone call per year on death row. So we only we did everything through snail mail. We wrote letters to each other. They would write essays and send them to me, and I would um, make suggestions for how to improve them, how to strengthen them. I would send essays back. They would rewrite the entire thing by hand, which took a long time, as you wow. can imagine, and then send them back to me again, and then I would send back more suggestions. And sometimes it could take weeks or months for a single essay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then in addition to that, it was important to me that, that they be very involved in the, the, the business side of things, that it wasn't just me editing essays and then making all of the business decisions, but I wanted them to have um, just a level of uh, ownership over how the book was structured and which essays made it into the book and if we would choose a publisher and which one. And so every time there was a decision like that, I had to write four different letters and send them to my co-authors and wait for four different replies. Inevitably, they completely disagreed and sometimes very vehemently with one another <laughs> or with me. <laughs> and so then I would have to try to sort through the process of, of coming to a consensus or sometimes making a decision one way or the mm -hmm. other when I couldn't call them all on a conference call. We couldn't sit down together and, and hash things out. It was just all letters. Um, and eventually, when they did get phones installed on death row, uh, we were able to call, but just, of course, one person at a time. So, so when were the phones installed on death row? 2016. 2016. And so how long was this process for you? When did you start? Uh, I think we started in 2015. So it's okay. about a year in that we got phones. It, what's, the, uh, what's the range of time that each of the, the four inmates has spent on, on death row? Uh, George, who you're going to be talking to today, has been there for 14 years. Mm -hmm. And then our co-author, Aleem, has been there for 27. So you said that it totally took me by surprise how you kind of fell into this at a, at a Super Bowl party. <laughs> but uh, I'm curious, what was your view of 
you know, death row and the death penalty in general prior to that? Very good question. Um, when I was younger, I was very much in favor of the death penalty. It sounded like a fair thing for me, sort of an eye for an eye. If you kill someone, you should, you forfeit your life. Um, but as I got older, I did get more involved in criminal justice issues and learned more about how the criminal justice system works. And I saw that a lot of my previous assumptions about the death penalty had been wrong. For example, I thought, like most people do, that, yeah, a lot of murders happen every year, but not very many people get sent to death row. So the ones who are there must be the worst of the worst. You know, your serial killers and your child murderers and, and all these um, folks must be the ones on death row. And one thing that I learned is that that's not necessarily true. You do have people on death row who committed especially horrific crimes, but there are a lot of people on death row, if not the majority, who committed, who have been convicted of crimes that are, um, that you wouldn't really think would earn a death sentence. And just by the time that the murder occurred, the county that they were in, the perhaps the um, criminal history of the person, just a number of different factors, they sort of wind up on death row. Uh, poor representation, poor uh, defense attorneys, that's a big one. Um, and so like, for example, in my class, there were two men who had never murdered anyone at all. They were actually accomplices to robberies and their robbery accomplice had killed someone. And in both cases, the, the person who actually killed someone during the robbery did not get the death penalty. Well, the person in my class who had just been there for the robbery did get the death penalty. So I thought, saw things like that that just make mm. no sense. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this is a very flawed system. We should not be uh, putting people's lives into a system that doesn't work like it should. Yeah, it's absolutely a, a flawed system. I, I would say a, a, a broken system for sure. And I'm curious, so the book came out in May of this year. Is that right? March. March. Sorry. I knew it was a month with an M. Yeah. <laughs> What's been the the general reaction to it from, from the public? It's been good. We've been doing speaking engagements. Um, we've gone on podcasts. We were on NPR a couple weeks ago. We've been speaking at a lot of churches, a lot of universities and colleges, nonprofit groups. And during each one, my co-authors call in because it's very important to me that they have the opportunity to tell their stories in their own voices. So it's not just mm -hmm. me telling it for them. Um, and the reaction has been really profound. I mean, a lot of people, when they listen to the to my co-authors, their stereotypes about who's in prison and who's on death row specifically are completely shattered. So I've gotten a lot of really positive feedback and some negative, of course. There's a lot of people who don't appreciate me advocating or humanizing um, people on death row. So, so you talked about the business side before and, and involving the uh, death row inmates in the process, your co-authors, how does that work from, can they make proceeds off of the book or how does that work from, from that aspect? Um, no, unfortunately there are laws against them being compensated. Um, so we try to do other things, um, you know, like they can tell me how the certain percentage of the proceeds is donated and they choose where it's donated to and a certain mm -hmm. percentage 
um, they can just tell me how to use it. Uh, so they have some control over over the funds, even if it's not given to them directly. Mm-hmm. Okay. So after writing this book and you know really bringing this this to light and shining a light on on death row and bringing these stories out that a lot of people would would never hear and sort of sort of breaking stigmas, do you think this is something that you'll sort of try to expand and and, and do more of working with death row inmates to on projects like this? I do. From working with this, it's very, very um, meaningful to me and fulfilling. I'm, I'm passionate about this. I think moving forward for future projects, I would like to involve the the victim's family side of things a little bit more than I did with this one. Um, I've been meeting a lot of people who are who have lost someone to murder and talking with them about what that was like and the pain and even stigma sometimes that they experience. And so in in future projects, I would like to move, I think, a little bit more towards restorative justice, where you see the voices of both people convicted of crimes and people who were victims of crimes, and you hear uh, both sides. That's that's interesting. So so with that, has there been any negative reaction from the victims of any of the death row inmates that that were your co-authors? I haven't heard from them yet. I expect that sometime I probably will. Um, these are crimes that happened, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so I haven't actually heard specifically from those families, but I have heard from, from other families who've lost someone to murder. And, and I've had some, some really deep conversations with them, uh, just listening to what things were like from their perspective. So I hope that, that when and if I am contacted by the actual um, victims of, of these particular men that I'll be able to respond with the with the compassion and empathy that they need. Yeah, I know it's it's an interesting um, just stories that I've heard from you know victims' families. Some are you know very much against uh, you know the the individual being on death row who mm-hmm. who who murdered their uh, you know their relative or their loved one, and, and some are very much for it. So it really really spans the entire spectrum. Yeah. Um, a lot of people probably just assume that all the family would, would be in favor of it, but that's that's not what I've seen from my little bit of research. Yeah, that's also my experience. With this book, what do you when you started this book? Did you have some sort of you know impact or uh, you know something that you visualized at the end uh, that you thought it would deliver? And and have you seen any of that really come to fruition? When I wrote this book, I didn't think anyone would read it. <laughs> so it was just kind of a labor of love um, between myself and four men who I just thought had some really profound things to say and had mm-hmm. taught a lot to me that I wanted to share with the world. So I'm surprised and kind of waking up to the possibility of this book and realizing that there's a much bigger audience than I had ever initially thought. So I'm sort of in that place right now where I'm coming to terms with that and also trying to figure out just the, the business side of things still. Um, being an author is very difficult uh, and trying to match that with what my broader vision for this is. And I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, but I do know that the thing I'm passionate about the most is helping people tell their stories and understand each other more. So as, as much as I can do that, as much as I can allow my co-authors the opportunity to tell their stories, 
to really impact people who don't know much about the death penalty and as much as I can eventually get more victims of crime to have their voices heard as well and tell their stories. I think that's what the direction I want to go with this. Just to go back to to working with the uh, the co-authors. So I haven't had a chance to to read the full book yet, which which I plan on doing. Um, but I did read the, the excerpts that you uh, that you sent. So so what was your your role as a co-author in um, in in how you wrote or or, or what uh, what you wrote about compared to what the inmates were were, were sharing? Were you sort of acting in like a uh, in a narrating voice, were you telling any of their story or was it just really focused on, uh, you know, sort of bringing their individual um, stories forward? I don't tell their stories at all in the book. They are brilliant writers and they tell their stories in their own words. So my job in the book, I set the scene. So I write the first chapter basically explaining how I got to death row, the story I just told you of how mm-hmm. this relationship developed and why we decided to write this book. And then at the very end, I wrote the epilogue where I get into the nitty gritty details of the death penalty itself and some of the issues with the death penalty system. But the entire rest of the book, 90, 95% of it is written by them. So they write their own essays and there's four sections. They each get uh, six to eight essays in each section. And they write about how they got to death row and the factors that have contributed to their growth as people since they've been there. Uh, And we actually do a a book club, which I would encourage listeners to sign up to for it's free. And during the book club, we meet uh, once a week for five weeks. And at each uh, book club, when we read that section that we're focusing on that week, that person calls in from prison. And you get, we get to have these really great back and forth conversations with the, the co-author who wrote that section. Oh, wow. The conversations get really interesting. Um, so you can sign up for that on my website, tessiecastillo.com, and it's a free book club. And actually, the next one starts, and the last one of 2020 starts October 18th, so soon. <laughs> so that's just conducted on, on Zoom, or, or yeah. how does that work? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah, that's a, that, that's a good idea. You know, it, it doesn't, you were saying that you were kind of surprised with, uh, you know, sort of the, the demand for this book and how interested people were. But from what I've seen from from my podcast, and, you know, I haven't talked to anyone on death row, but I've talked to a lot of people who've been through the criminal justice system, bringing their stories forward. Um, and there is really not only just a fascination with, you know, to learn about how people end up in these situations and, and how this happens, but... I think there is, you know, something to learn about from a, almost from like a, a motivation standpoint, you know, if people are able to stay motivated through serving these long prison sentences and get out on the other side, in in the cases I'm talking about people not on death row, and uh, then start contributing to society, I think there's a lot we can learn about as in individuals dealing with, you know, the little uh, obstacles and things we run into in our lives. And I would think even more so for, for uh, your co-authors on death row on how they're dealing with that and uh, staying motivated to write. And, you know, I'm definitely going to ask George about, you know, how, how he's been able to, uh, to do that, you know, what's sort of uh, helped him to stay motivated and to work on personal development and, and things like that. So I think it's a, there's a lot of angles to, uh, to look at, to look at this from. Absolutely. I would say that that motivation and 
seeing the situation they're in as something bigger than themselves is the, the thing that distinguished the people who are broken down by spending this much time in prison from the ones who've grown from it. Because mm-hmm. uh, it's not, they grow from it if they see this is not just about me. I can use this really unfortunate thing that happened to me to help other people. Uh, and that's the ones who stay motivated and the ones who do well and even thrive in an environment that you wouldn't think would contribute to anyone thriving. (laughs) Yeah. And there's probably something to be learned there for, you know, how we can better our uh, incarceration systems to, to bring more of that out. Hopefully. I I don't know how, how likely that is with our uh, Bureau of prisons right now, but it's still, is is probably something to learn there and something to implement, Mm -hmm. but uh, we're, we're running out of time here and we're going to be, George is going to be joining us soon. But uh, before that happens, just wanted to give you a chance to, to, to plug where people can buy your book, where they can find the book club again and, and anything else you want to uh, talk about. Sure. Uh, so I absolutely encourage people to sign up for our book club. Next one starts October 18th and you can sign up at www.tessiecastillo.com. You can also buy the book on my website and I would encourage you please to buy it from my website and not from any other distributor because authors make absolutely nothing if you buy books on Amazon or or from bookstores. Uh, So you can get an autographed copy from my website. And also if you're interested in having me and my co-authors come and speak at a school or a church or any kind of an organization, we do set up virtual events through Zoom for speaking engagements. So you can also reach out for me, to me about those because we'd love to. We love doing that. Okay, awesome. And I will definitely have links to all of that on the on the show notes page for people to to find that easily at uh, lionsofliberty.com. So Tessie, thanks for uh, for coming on the show, and now we'll uh, get connected with with George here. Thanks very much. Hey, let's take a real quick commercial break. I want to tell you about a great coffee company, Lorenzotti Italy. This is a company started by libertarians, two guys, Robert and Zach. They couldn't be more different, but they both love coffee. And they love that experience of that small, independent coffee shop. They actually love it so much that not only are they a coffee company that sells delicious coffee, but they help entrepreneurs and coffee enthusiasts set up their own business with equipment and financing and all that stuff. So what you can do to help them out and to help us out a little bit is you can go to laurenzotti.coffee, that's .coffee, not .com, and enter discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. Check it out at Lorenzotti Italy. Coffee is their passion. They're just two guys who want to bring an excellent coffee to the U.S. and make business easier and more profitable for the passionate entrepreneurs who provide the best coffee experiences for their patrons. Check it out, Lorenzotti.coffee. Enter promo code LIONS for 10% off. All right, my guest today is George T. Wilkerson. George was sentenced to two death sentences uh, back in December of uh, 2006. He's on death row in North Carolina. Uh, During his time on death row, uh, George has written many articles, and uh, he recently co-authored The Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row with uh, Tessie Castillo, who uh, you just heard from. This book contains 30 compelling essays written in the prisoner's own words. George, welcome to Felony Friday. Hey, thank you, man, for having me. Well, thanks for coming on the show, uh, taking some time to uh, 
to share about your life and, and about your experience on death row with uh, with my audience. I, I do appreciate that. And really to to start out, I'd kind of like to start really at the beginning of, of your death row experience here and just to give give my audience sort of a uh, your perspective um, on this topic. When you first heard that you were when you first received the sentence, when you heard that you know the judge read that you were going to be sentenced to uh, to the death penalty, what was your mindset at that point in time? Oh wow, that's uh, it, it. Kind of felt like I was being diagnosed with a, a terminal illness, like maybe I was just told that I had stage four cancer or something like that. Um, I had just actually lost my father. My dad died in the midst of my trial. He didn't die in the courtroom, but he died about uh, a week, a little over a week before I was I was sentenced to die. So I was still sort of stunned and, and disoriented and grieving um, the loss of my father. And so I kind of just had like this, this attitude where I had just given up, uh, so to speak. Like I was already uh, in a dark place mentally. Um, so I was just I kind of took it as like just a natural course of events. Uh, you know, I just kind of felt lost at that time. And how has that that attitude evolved since 2006? Well, it's, uh, it did a complete 180, I'd say. Uh, it was a, a gradual process, and it's something I'm still trying to wrap my mind around now, uh, but... Um, since then, I had uh, become a Christian. I've, I've given myself to God and devoted myself to trying to live uh, the way that God wants me to, and that has just really been the uh, transforming element in my life. It's just um, given me a sense of purpose and direction. And, uh, you know, despite where I am and despite all the things that I've done in my life, um, I still have a chance to, to do some good in the world. Uh, regardless of how this ends for me, uh, I'm determined to not waste a little bit of life that I have left. Yeah, that's that's an interesting perspective. Um, so I, I've read I've read some of your, your your writing, and it's very good. I haven't read the entire uh, Crimson Letters book yet, but I plan to. Um, but, but I read read one of your excerpts, and I read one of your your um, articles, and you're you're an excellent writer. I'm curious to. To ask you about your writing in general, is that something that you did, that you have a history in, you know, pr- previously, or is that something that you've you've worked on while you've been in prison? Um, no, I had no experience before I came to prison. Actually, it started uh, back in 2013. Uh, up until then, like death row, we had access to no classes, no uh, educational opportunities, or anything like that. And we still don't. But at that time. Uh, we had a, a psychologist who uh, came to death row, and he was sort of appointed to, to oversee the uh, mental health treatment over here because I think about 50% of our death row population is on uh, has been diagnosed with serious or persistent mental disorders. And so most of the people here are on some, some form of um, uh, uh, medication for that, and medication was sort of like the, the catch-all. Uh, but when this guy came, his name was Dr. Coons, um, he he started overseeing all of the treatment and saw medication as like, instead of being the panacea, he, he saw it as like the, the last resort. 
in the in the treatment plan. So he felt like there were a lot of activities that we could do uh, that would be more beneficial psychologically than just you know giving somebody medication when and the medication was just for I guess to sedate people, sedate the population, and just kind of keep us docile or whatever. So uh, the first class that he brought was uh, a creative writing class, and it was called Writing from Captivity. And up until then, the only creative thing I'd ever done in my life was, I guess, just art. I'd always been interested in art. I'd been practicing art since I was a little kid uh, and gotten pretty good at it. And in in a large way, it sort of um, defined, it was a key aspect of my identity, I'd say. Uh, But I had been like I said, studying the Bible and devoting myself to God and trying to just be in tune uh, with the Spirit of God. And so like I had saw the flyer that was advertising the creative writing class, and I personally had no interest in it at all. Like, it didn't appeal to me at all. Uh, but I just really had this strong compulsion, I guess, or intuition that, that God was just moving me to to sign up and participate in it, even though I personally, like I said, had no desire for it. And so I went out there, and uh, the way that it was structured was every week or two, we would do a different workshop on uh, that featured uh, a different writer uh, throughout history who had written from some form of captivity. Uh, so a lot of it was like the scriptures, for example. Uh, the New Test- In the New Testament, Paul literally literally writes uh, a lot of the New Testament from imprisonment. Either he is on house arrest or he's in a literal dungeon, and he's writing from that place of confinement. And that just kind of opened my eyes to the power of writing, because I think, you know, how many billions of people are still impacted by the writings of Paul today? I mean, they made it into the canon of, of Scripture. Uh, but then, you know, there were other figures like Martin Luther King Jr. We read some of his letters um, that he wrote from uh, the jail. Or, you know, just just like I said, just people like that, just books that were written or texts that were written, not necessarily religious in nature, but uh, we just studied those. And I remember we did a workshop on poetry, actually. And I just had this moment where I just got it. Like I just had this aha moment about poetry at that moment, just and, and I kind of fell in love with poetry. Um, and so I kind of became obsessed with writing poetry. Uh, but by being in that writing class, we would receive assignments every week that challenged us to just write in all these different styles, whether essays or fiction or um, memoir. Um, or just, you know, we just had all these creative writing assignments that we had to that we had committed to doing. Uh, and so in the process of doing that and just my obsession with writing, I just, I was really learning a lot and, um, I felt like God was involved in it because I might be semi-intelligent, but I, I never have learned anything that fast in my life. I've never gotten that good, you know, gotten good at anything, um, that quickly in my life. Uh, so I felt like maybe there was something else, uh, going on in that. And, um, seeing or, or believing that, you know, God has given me a gift and, and also seeing that words are so powerful. I really felt like this deep sense of responsibility uh, connected to my writing also, because uh, I know how dangerous words are, how they can hurt someone or help someone. And so I felt like, you know, I need to use uh, what I'm given uh, to do some sort of good. And so that just kind of all coalesced and, and over the years uh, since then, uh, I've really just 
uh, adhere to that value uh, and try to put that into practice and let it sort of shape uh, everything that I write. Yeah, well, I, I would definitely agree that you, you have a gift for writing. Um, I, I wanted to, to ask you, you mentioned the Bible, uh, and you mentioned uh, Martin Luther King, but I wanted to ask you some of your favorite uh, books or, or authors to read. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I think now it, it changes over time. It depends kind of like on what mood I'm in, I think, um, because I've, I love to read. Uh, so each genre... I think has, I guess, like a, a authors that, that I tend to gravitate toward. Uh, but I'd say overall, uh, Stephen King is, is probably like my first love just in terms of, of writing. I don't know what it is about his style, uh, but just in terms of fiction, uh, that's the one I'm always drawn toward. And, and sometimes I'll just be in the mood and I'll try to check out one of his books from the library. Uh, there's certain books of his that I've read, uh, several times. Um, but in terms of memoir, there's a woman named Brenda Miller uh, who wrote this really great book um, called In Earlier Life. And even though it's memoir, she kind of write has this weird poetic style of writing essays where they're not really linear in the way that they're structured. It's more like she puts all the components of a moment right there in the essay, but not necessarily connecting the threads, you know, she kind of counts on the reader to um, put the pieces together and, like, maybe create this gestalt of understanding that, that's just irreducible. Um, so it kind of, like, replicate, replicates this, this non-linear way uh, that we understand uh, life in general. And so I just wanted to sort of, I pulled, a, I learned a lot from reading her stuff. Like I said, it's, since it's such a... You have 60 seconds remaining. Since it's such an odd style, you can't really like sit down and create a how-to. But um, you know, I just felt like she gave me permission to to write in my own uh, creative style that's true to my experience, rather than trying to just like write expository essays or <laughs> do what all the critics say you ought to do and all that. So she gave me permission to break the rules, so to speak. That's awesome. That's that's really interesting. So with the sixty seconds, you have thirty I guess, seconds remaining. George will have to call back. Okay, yeah, so, I'm going to call okay. right back. All right, so I'll wait, I'll wait on the next question then until you call back in. Okay. He's gone. Okay. But he'll be right back. Those are good questions. I don't think anyone has asked him how he felt when he received the death sentence. Really? Oh. Yeah. Uh, you would think. It's a pretty obvious question, but I don't remember him being asked that one before, but that's a good one. I try to ask everyone that because that's, that's <laughs> when it all starts. Yeah, one of my co-authors writes has an essay about it, about the whole trial from his perspective, mm -hmm. which is really interesting. So, okay. um, all right, here's George again. Hello. Hey, George. Hey, George. Hey. hey. All right. So, so uh, ne next question here. Um, I'm, I'm curious. I know my listeners are curious too. Uh, with you know being on death row, could you just share with us what a what a typical day for you is like? Well, it's different right now during this pandemic uh, because we're under uh, what they call a modified lockdown. So uh, now a typical day is, like I said, it's a little bit different than it was pre-pandemic. Uh, so right now I might wake up about 
four o'clock in the morning and uh between four and four thirty they're like open all our doors because we we get locked in um from eleven o'clock at night until six in the morning uh so we're all in our own cells we have uh single man cells um and so but the doors are open at about between four and four thirty and they'll bring our food to the pod our breakfast trays uh so we'll come out and we'll get our breakfast trays and either take them back to our room and eat them or you know sit out in the day room and eat them or whatever, but I'll just put my tray to the side, uh, wash my face, like, uh, you know, pray, and then uh, I'll exercise typically for about two hours, uh, then get cleaned up, uh, cool down, read my Bible uh, for a little while, and then I might eat breakfast around 7.30, um, then maybe get a shower, and then sit down and write for a couple hours, uh, then get ready for lunch. I might make a couple phone calls. Uh, throughout that time, uh, interact with guys, see if anyone needs anything or, you know, just kind of try to be available throughout the day, uh, for the guys on my pod. If anybody needs some help with anything or, you know, because we're all in here together. So we, we kind of lean on each other, uh, in different ways. Um, you know, then just so throughout the day, you know, I'm just trying to stay busy, either studying or, or, uh, writing or, uh, making phone calls or, uh, dealing with correspondence, uh, writing letters, or uh, just trying to uh, make plans for projects that I want to work on. Uh, you know, then that's pretty much occupies my day. I don't watch TV or anything like that. I mean, they bring movies every day now, uh, movie every day from Netflix uh, because we can't go outside the wreck, but every other day we only get the commissary uh, every other day. Uh, so we're really on the pod a lot. Uh, nowadays, uh, we don't go to the cafeteria like we used to. Uh, we can't play basketball or volleyball or anything like that. So uh, they bring us the movies. So I might watch uh, two or three movies a week. That's about all the TV I watch during the week. Okay. Uh, then maybe for about the last hour of the day, while I'm laying down, winding down, I'll read. I just lay there and read and pray and then go to sleep. What's the food like? It's stereotypical. It is. Uh, it is. It's worse actually now. Uh, at least before, I have to say, for prison food, it, it wasn't like just horrible. When we can go to the cafeteria because it was getting served right off the line. But now uh, they put the tray. They put the food on these like I guess these hot trays, and they cover them with a lid. Uh, then they put them in these big carts that I guess somehow uh, keep them hot. That like they're electric or whatever um so they they heat the food up while they're in this thing and they're bringing them to us and the trays might have been in this hot box or whatever for 30 or 40 minutes so everything kind of like gets wet uh from the steam uh, because the lid is on the tray it's like a tupperware type tray uh so like the bread is moist and the flavors from all the different foods that are on the tray like kind of blend together uh, so the cake might taste like green beans um, or, you know, the food is spilling into the different compartments because it's being jostled around uh, as they push the big cart down the hall. And so it's just, it's pretty gross uh, right now. It's, it's bad. Um, yeah, it sucks. 
So it, it, it sounds like when, when you were walking through uh, your typical day there that you have a you know pretty pretty standard uh, you know system in, in place or r- routine I guess in place with the way you, you, you go about your day. I, I'm curious how you're able to you know stay motivated to work out or stay motivated to read and write. Um, what types of what types of things really contribute to keeping you motivated and you know keeping you to push forward to uh, continue to grow uh, personally? Well, um, these are directly uh, connected to my faith. Like I said, once I came to death row, I did a lot of self. I've had plenty of time to self reflect uh, in the two years leading up to my trial, especially so. Like from the day I got arrested, um, I just. It was for the, I had been sober for the first time in my life because I had been getting high basically every day from the time I woke up to the time I went to sleep from about the age of 16. But for four or five years up to the age of 16, I got high regularly, but I couldn't stay high from, from the time I woke up to the time I went to bed. At age 16 is when I had just steady access um, and a steady income. Um, so that really changed everything for me. Uh, but when I went to jail at age 23, I no longer had access to all that stuff. And, and so I was sober and I had to face myself and I had a suicide attempt. I, I tried to commit suicide several months uh, into my uh, jail stay. And, uh, you know, I just really had a hard time coping with uh, just the reality of, of my situation. Uh, but I had always believed in God in some sense. And so... Um, I started investigating and studying and trying to find the truth of, of God uh, in whatever form that would look like. But I was also trying to find the truth of how I how I ended up where I was, and I realized that I had just basically thrown my life away all my life. I just had been wasting, squandering uh, just my life. Um, I just was filled with all this regret and uh, remorse and just, man, I just really wanted to die. Um, but my suicide attempt failed. Um, so I kind of felt like, you know, I wasn't meant to die at that moment. And I just did a lot of searching about why am I still alive? And, um, you know, I was determined to not waste uh, what I do have, Uh, whether I lived or died, I wanted to at least just not waste the little bit of life that I did have left. And, um, you know, I wanted to do what God wanted me to do, which ultimately is just to, to love my neighbor. Uh, which is a very difficult thing to do. It's simple to understand, but it's really difficult to do. But just in the practice of trying to meet those two big goals, which is not to not waste my life and to actually do what God wants me to do, uh, just all these disciplines um, started to emerge around trying to accomplish those two things. Uh, because to to not waste my life means that I kind of have to stay healthy, which requires me to exercise and uh, to read and study and all those types of things. So, um, you know, had to just over time, just learn how to overcome my tendency toward laziness. And, um, uh, I think I struggled with a little bit of attention deficit. So I had to overcome some of that, uh, so my mind would stray real easily when I was trying to focus on studying. And like I said, just over time, these habits, um, just have built a life, uh, for me, like where I'm at right now, is just the accumulation of all these, uh, healthy habits that I that I built one by one into my life. That's uh, that's really really good advice, I think. Um, so speaking, I guess speaking of of advice, 
you know, a lot of my listeners, either they have a loved one or, or they know someone who is in prison. There's probably listening who, there's probably people listening who have a loved one on uh, on death row. I'm curious what sort of advice or insights um, you would have for for anyone who who has a loved one in in prison. Oh man, uh, well, I, there's so much, right? Uh, there's a million things uh, that come with this type of situation that I know our families uh, suffer probably more than we do. I couldn't understand that before, uh, but I, I do understand that now. Like, you know, when I first got incarcerated, I just really was so focused on um, on my own suffering of, of me being incarcerated and how much I disliked it and all that, but um, I, I couldn't understand how, like, my mom or my brothers or my sister uh, were suffering uh, because of my situation. Uh, they were suffering a lot more than I was. Um, so from a, from that, from an outside perspective, I guess I, I, I just say, you know, be patient. Uh, people do change. Uh, I was as bad a person as a person could be, I'd say. Uh, I was as selfish as, as a person could be, but, um, God got a hold of me and I, I made that determination. And, and over the years, incrementally, uh, I have, I have changed. I have done that 180. It took a long time for me to change, but, um, it is possible. People can and do change. So I'd say, you know, if you're on the outside and you're dealing with someone that's in prison, uh, just try to be patient and, uh, and help uh, the person become uh, the person that they that they aim to be and understand that it's a process. Uh, it's not something that's going to happen overnight uh, because ideas are the things that shape our behavior. Uh, and so a lot of it is just about uh, helping me to uh, encounter those ideas and see um, how important they are. And then as I would accept new ideas and put them into practice, like my life would change just that little bit as it related to that idea. Uh, so it was just a uh, uh, step-by-step process, man. It's just incremental, like I say. I think that's good advice for, for anyone out there. Um, so I'm curious... You're talking about the. You've talked about previously about the power of you know writing um, from prison, yeah, and you know the, from what happened in the Bible to to Martin Luther King. So would you kind of you know envision uh, the impact that that you can have? What what do you want to be remembered for when, when all is when, when all is said and done with your time on Earth? When people look back on your life? What do you want that memory to be? Um, I think I don't want people to say that um, I, I saw the light. Uh, I, I recognize um, how messed up my life was before and I saw the light and and it changed me. I wasn't the same afterward. I've never been the same. Uh, and I try to help others to see it too. That's that's powerful. Um, what, what do you what do you think? And maybe this is hard to answer, but you know, uh, 
b- before your time on death row, I guess, looking back on that, or, or maybe just from seeing movies, what, what do you think society's biggest misconception is of death row? Um, I think that people don't change. I think, you know, we, we have a tendency to define people by things that they do wrong. Uh, a lot of people here, uh, there are actually are people here that are innocent, first of all. Uh, but most of the people here are not guilty of premeditated murder. Even the ones that are guilty in some form are not guilty of what they were convicted of. Uh, it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. They got caught up in the heat of the moment. They just lost control, and things happened, and it got out of control, and someone ended up dying in the process. And that's bad. I'm not taking away from that. I'm not trying to justify that in any way. Um, but people are remorseful, and there are people here, the majority of the people here, in fact, are trying to change for the better in some way. Um, and people do change. I think that's the, the biggest misconception is that you know, once someone does something, they'll always be that way. And that's just not true. Uh, people can change and people do change. Uh, and I hate to use myself in, as, as an example of that. So I'll talk about others, but I see people changing every day. In here, I see people striving for. You have 60 seconds remaining. Uh, and we have no reason, nothing to gain from it. Uh, you know, it's not like by changing, it's going to help someone get off their throat. <laughs> It doesn't happen. A lot of guys that are here are going to die here, and yet they're still trying to uh, better themselves. Well, thank you, George, for your time. And uh, I guess just just one last thing. You have a couple 30 seconds left here. Why should people read uh, Crimson Letters? Uh, You have 30 seconds remaining. I think we have like this us versus them mentality. So we see things that people do and we think, oh, I can, I have nothing in common with that person. But I think Crimson Letters shows us that uh, regardless of how different we may seem, essentially, we are all the same. We're all human. And I think it's easy to overlook that. Hey, I hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Tessie Castillo and George T. Wilkerson. Unfortunately, at the very end there, we did have some technical difficulties. I think it was actually on my end that it got cut off because I, he still had more time left. So I'm not sure what happened. Uh, really um, happy that I got to speak with George and uh, gain his perspective. And you know, I'm thankful for, for Tessie getting to speak with her too and everything that she's done to pull this entire project together. So I'm going to encourage you to uh, go to the show notes page, go to linesofliberty.com, check out our new website, our new website design, and you'll find the interview right there at the top. So go check it out. Um, Go to the show notes page and look into joining um, Tessie's book club and buy the book through her link so she can make some money. And uh, these inmates can donate some of their uh, proceeds to charity and uh, everybody wins. Um, And I I do want to add one more thing about the... uh, about, about the format of the show there, you notice that I had the interview with Tessie first, and then we brought George in. And I wanted to leave in as much conversation as possible. And even around when uh, on the phone call, the, the 60 second and 30 second warnings, I didn't want to edit that stuff out. I didn't want to, you know, I, I could have maybe, I probably would have had to cut some of what George was saying out to do that. And I didn't want to do that. And I, th- I think it's important for, for you guys to, you know, understand that and feel like you were you were a part of this phone call so i didn't want to take away from any of that so if you're wondering why that stuff's in there that's why it's there just uh thank you guys so much for tuning in 
I don't want to take you know any that much more of your time here today, but I just something that we're really passionate about right now at Lions of Liberty that is really doing well, surprisingly, maybe not, but we're selling a lot of our, our t-shirts and we have some really um, cool and unique designs at lionsofliberty.store. And I just encourage you to go check them out. We have a uh, taxation is death t-shirt. Of course, our tax money goes to pay for the bombs that go to blow things up overseas. And uh, a wax on, tax off uh, Mr. Miyagi style t-shirt. So there's more coming. This is our launching of a, uh, a Lions of Liberty brand. You get the design on the front and a little Lions of Liberty tiny logo on the collar just to remind you um, where the t-shirt came from. So please Check that out, and if you're not in the Lions of Liberty Pride, consider joining uh, for as little as $5 a month. You get perks, you get the bonus content, and you get 20% off t-shirts in the store, so you can use it towards that. So check it out. That is at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty. I just want to go ahead and thank Tessie Castillo and George T. Wilkerson again uh, for their time. Just, uh, you know, it's been a... It was a remarkable interview for me to uh, to get to speak with someone on death row and to to gain their perspective on on a lot of things. And I wish I had, you know, another another hour or two hours. I have, I have a lot of questions, and maybe I'll get to speak with George again and get to speak with uh, with other inmates uh, on death row, hopefully in the future, because I think it's it's very important and it's a very forgotten part about our criminal justice system. So everyone. Thank you for tuning in, and I uh, hope you all have a great weekend, a happy Friday, or whenever you listen to this. And this is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up, and the fire's of liberty burning. <laughs>